Lord, and open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to share. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you'd have us to see from this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 21, starting at verse 1. The burden of the desert of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from the terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me, O the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. All the signs thereof have I made to cease. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. My heart pants, fearful, fearfulness affrighteth me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtowers, eat, drink, and arise, O ye princes, and anoint the shield. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. And he, and he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. And he cried, A lion, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower as in the daytime, and I set my ward whole nights. And behold, here comes the chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen and is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. O my threshing and my corn of my floor, that, that which I have heard the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Israel, have I declared unto you. All right. This chapter is a, is a chapter on the destruction of Babylon. And when Isaiah gives it, Babylon is a mighty empire, and we later on will see its actual fall and fulfillment of this prophecy. But it says the burden, which is, we've talked before, is the oracle. The oracle of the prophecy of the desert of the sea. Now this one is a little ambiguous and they're not quite sure what it is, but most scholars believe that it talks about all the crisscrossing channels of Babylon, that from a distance it looked, looked like an ocean area, when, especially when it was flooded, and they, were, they covered that area with uh, canals. And we see that even in archaeological studies they show you know, all the different crisscrossing of the canals and that Babylon had a huge, huge flood system that they, that they had developed to control floods and be able to monitor what was going on. All right, so we see here, it's a picture of Babylon's destruction. And, and like I say, most people believe that they're talking about the desert of the sea being Babylon with all of its crisscrossing flood con control and canals that they use to water their fields. And it says, as whirlwinds in the south pass through and comes from the desert, from the terrible land, and whirlwinds, tornadoes, you know, might even, might even be the idea of dust devils that, that we are so familiar with in the desert areas that come up in, the, in there and, and cause problems. And it says this is a grievous vision, a cruel or severe vision that's declared unto me. So Isaiah is actually seeing what God is going to do to Babylon. And you've got to think about this, you know, he's seeing something that's going to be in the future Babylon's a strong nation when he's, when, he's preaching, when he's preaching and teaching. And he sees their destruction. And they're, 
Destruction, if you know about the fall of Babylon, it falls in a single day. The, 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 the city of Babylon just collapses in a day. And when we get through here, we'll go read that description of Babylon's fall. Because uh, it's in the Bible where it talks about it. And it says, the treacherous deal, dealer dealeth treacherously, the spoiler spoileth. And I kind of think this is an interesting thing because this is really a true statement. People who are dishonest will always be dishonest unless God redeems their heart. Uh, those who are liars lie. Those who steal, steal. Those who, you know, spoil, spoil. You know, if they're going to deal treacherously, they're going to deal treacherously. Now, God can come into their life and change who they are and does. But here he's saying Babylon deals in treachery and, and spoils, and they're going to end up being spoiled. And it's kind of interesting when somebody acts in a certain way, in a habitual way, uh, if somebody is a perpetual liar, they will believe that everybody lies. Okay? If somebody is a thief, to them, everybody steals. You know, it's just their mindset. Everybody steals. I, I get a lot of that when I'm at the prison. People will tell me, well, everybody does something. I go, no, not everybody does anything. Okay, well, you know, everybody I knew, well, that's a, that's a small subset of everybody. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, you don't, no matter how many people you know, you didn't know everybody. You know? And this is what ends up happening is we oftentimes deal and treat with people after the way we think they're going to behave. And usually the way we think they're going to behave is based on how we would behave. And I see this several times when people will say, well, you know, so-and-so did this to me, and this is what they meant, or this is what they were thinking. And my question usually will be, how do you know what they were thinking? You know, you're projecting your personality upon them. Okay? And that's not a good thing to do because that gets you in trouble. If somebody's being nice to you and, you're, and you would never be nice to, to somebody unless you were trying to get something, <coughs> then you're going, what are they trying to get? Okay? They're just being nice because God wants them to be nice you know, and treat you kindly. And you're thinking, okay, what, what, you know, when, when, when is the shoe going to drop? When are you going to require something back of me, back from me? And I have heard that from different people that the church has reached out to at various times. Well, you know, when, when are you going to ask for something back? Well, that's not our job. You know, that's, God is reaching out to you to touch you. And we're not trying to manipulate people into doing anything. My job is, not, is just to love people, not to manipulate them into doing anything, not to try to coerce them into doing something because they're being treated nicely. And we do this in, in all the things we do. We do the men's breakfast on Saturdays, and we don't require the men to do anything. We, we do the month-end dinners, and we don't, require, we don't even require people to come to church. <laughs> okay? There's a lot of churches that if you're going to come to the dinner, you have to come to church to be able to go to dinner. You know, and I look at it, here's our opportunity to minister to people. Now, would I prefer that they come to church? <laughs> Absolutely. But we're never going to make it a requirement that you have to come to church to come to the dinner, because when you're at the dinner, you get a chance to get ministered to. And so here we see him saying that people are going to act like what, they're, what they are. And they expect people to act the way they are. And this is something we as Christians need to be careful of ourselves. Sometimes 
if we learn to be gracious, we can almost be too gracious to people and get used and abused because we expect people to treat us the way we would be treated, you know, that we would be respond to it. But we want to be careful there because we don't want to retreat too far the other direction either. Okay, and it's a fine balancing act of discernment. And I've said over and over again, if I'm going to err on any side of things, I want to err on the side of grace. If somebody abuses God's grace, that's between them and God. So if I'm going to, if I don't have an absolute knowledge that God wants me to do something hard, then I'm going to be gracious. Is there a time for being hard? Absolutely. For parents, there's a lot of times to be hard. Okay, when we're raising our kids, it's, it's not all grace to say, well, you can do whatever you want, because God doesn't deal with us that way. God gives us grace, but we've said sin has consequence. If we do wrong things, there are consequences that we have to face for that disobedience. And this is sometimes parents have to do that, pastors have to do that, governments have to do that. You know, governments in particular are not there to give grace. God says they're his ministers of correction. So the government, when you stand in front of the courts, their job is not to say, okay, well, we know you're sorry, so we're going to forgive you. That's not their job. Their job, it would be really nice sometimes. But if they did that to every single person, you know, very quickly we would go, well, they're not doing their job. These guys are doing wrong and not being punished. We would have a problem with it after a while. Usually if it's us, we'd like grace and mercy. But their job is not to give grace and mercy. Now, us as Christians, our job is to give grace and mercy and let God get the revenge. Yeah. And this is very important for us as we look forward and to what go, what's going on. You know, on the second half of verse 2, it says, Go up, O Elam, besiege, O media, all the sign thereof I have made to cease. The Medo-Persian Medo Empire is the one that conquers the Babylonian Empire. And God's saying, rise up. You're going to be, the vic you're going to be this victorious, victorious group. And verse 3, Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me. As the pangs of a woman that travaileth, I bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. Here's Isaiah's reaction. You would think that Isaiah's reaction to seeing an enemy of Israel fall would be, oh, yay, hooray. <laughs> okay, but it's not his decision. His, his answer wasn't, oh, oh, joy, my enemy has fallen. It's, I am in deep despair for what's happened to, my, to the enemy. And his despair is quite interesting. You know, loins are filled with pain, you know, the, the, the groin area. And then to further bring that out, he goes, I'm in travail, I'm in travail as, a, as a woman in travail. He's saying, I am in great pain to see my enemy destroyed. You know, and this is an attitude that we as Christians should have. You know, and I've said this over and over. I do not like to see people getting punished even if they deserve it. Okay? It's not my glory to see them punished. Even if they deserve it, it's not what I want to see. God is our defense. He will punish people who come against uh, his children. But my, I'm not going to sit there and, oh, great, look, look what happened to them. You know, they, they, they've been torn apart because of what they did. That's, not, that's the world's way of thinking. That is not the way we're supposed to be thinking as Christians. You know, we need to be saying, oh, what sadness. Yes, they might have deserved it. Yes, yes it's probably 
you know, might you know, be just what they deserve, and if God allowed it, it is what they deserve. But we're not going to rejoice in it. Yeah. David in the Psalms rejoiced over the defeating of his enemies and oftentimes prayed for his enemies to be, be crushed and destroyed. That's not Isaiah's heart. That's not Jeremiah's heart. That's not the heart that Christians are to have. We're to look and say, God, I'm sad for what happened to them. Yes, they might have deserved it. But God, you know, it's not what I wanted to see. I've seen people have been had their whole lives destroyed because of things they have done. I shared with you guys, I know a man who attacked a pastor who didn't deserve it. He, his wife divorced him. He got cancer. Two of his three sons died of diseases. You know, he went through hell, and I'm absolutely sure it's because of his attacks on the pastor that were undeserved. And myself and another guy had gone up to him and said, you've got to start this. You've got to repent, and he never did. So God did what he had to do to stop it. Now, was I happy to see what happened to him? Absolutely not. It was like, will you repent? Will you, will you stop? And he never did. You know, not, to, not to the best of my knowledge did he ever stop. And this is, this is what's going on. We should be dismayed at what happens to even those who deserve it. You know, and not, understand that God's allowing what needs to be done, needs to happen in their life, but not rejoice in it. And if we don't rejoice in it, we, we have compassion for, that peop- for those people. And sometimes that's just what they need to win them to God. Somebody able to say, you know, I'm really sorry about what's happened. How can, how, can, how can we help or what can we do to help? And you may or may not be able to do anything much more than pray and encourage them. And this is something that's very important. And, and Isaiah's attitude toward all of this is, you know, great trembling. And we've got to remember, Babylon is an enemy. He knows that Babylon's going to conquer his, Judah. And yet, his heart goes out, they're going to be destroyed. Much better than the prophet Jonah. Remember Jonah? He was called to go to Nineveh. Okay. Nineveh was the enemy of, of, the, of Israel at the time. And, and he says, oh no, I'm not going anywhere near Nineveh. I'm going the other way. I, God, I want them to be destroyed. Okay. And... You know, of course, God did his miracle, bringing him back with the great fish, and he preached in Nineveh, and tens of thousands of people got, got saved and converted, and, and he sits up on the hill, hill complaining to God. You know, and in one of his last statements in the, in the book of Jonah is, God, I knew how merciful you were. I knew that if I preached to them, you'd forgive them. And God had to teach him a long lesson about that. But Jonah's heart was nothing like Isaiah's heart. Okay, Jonah's heart was, God, I want them destroyed. You, go, you take them off the face of the, face of the map. I, I want them gone. And God says, no, I told you to preach to them. Isaiah's heart is the exact opposite. It's so tender that he says, no, God, I don't want to see this. It hurts. And we need to be able to ask God to give us that heart for enemies. You know, Jesus said that we're to love our enemies, do good to those who despitefully use us. Now, we all know that that's the easiest thing in the world to do, right? Love our enemies and do good to those who, don't, who, who are out there to mistreat us. You know, that is a godly action. It is not something that comes natural. It is not something that is the first thing on my mind when somebody is trying to abuse me is to be nice to them and do something good for them. It's not our nor- that is not the way we think. And yet that's what God says. We as Christians are to be that way. 
we're to do good to those who, who are actively seeking to harm us. That's our goal, is to, to be able to do kindness to them. Uh, we read in, if you read uh, Corey Ten Boom in The Hiding Place, her, she was told by God to go love those who had abused her. You know, she, had to, she had to show kindness to the guards that had, that had abused all of them. Louis Zapparini, if you've read his story or anything, he felt that he had to go give forgiveness to the Japanese guards that had tortured him. Now, this is a call that God gives a lot of Christians sometimes. I want you to go back and show them the forgiveness that I have for them. And people need to see forgiveness. We don't know how to love until we are loved. And that's why Jesus said, you love me because I first loved you. You came to me because I called you. You forgive because I forgive you. And so we learn all this stuff because of what God does for us. And then he expects us to pour it back out on other people. Not an easy thing to do because the flesh doesn't want to do it. But yet that's what he's expecting us to do. And this this is what we see here. Verse 4, my heart pants, fearfulness frights me, and the night of my pleasure has turned into fear unto me. This is actually starting to turn the tables to what was going on in Babylon. Okay, they were, they were having a great party in Babylon when they got conquered. And you know, we'll, we'll read that story. Let's go ahead and read that story, and we'll see how, that, how, you, how this goes. Daniel chapter 5, verse, verse 1, Daniel. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to the thousands of his lords and drank wine before the thousands. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. They that brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of the God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and wood and stone. In the same hour came forth a finger of a man's hand and rode up over against the candlesticks upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. All right, so we go through on here, we see... We see the rest of the story that he, he gets a message written on there. Nobody can read the message. He calls, you know, hey, all the wise men, can you read the message? None of them can. Remember, he calls Daniel. And Daniel says, okay, yeah, I can read it. He goes, well, good. I'll give you all these great gifts and blessings. And Paul and Peter, and, yeah. And Daniel, <laughs> give every other Bible name on first. And Daniel called out to him and said, you keep your, you keep your rewards. And he says, Here's your message. You've been weighed, you've been balanced, and today your kingdom is going to fall. Okay? And then we go to the very end of this, this chapter 5 and verse 30. It says, In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Wow. Okay? And history tells us that the way they, the way they won this battle is they had besieged Babylon was being besieged by the Medo-Persian army. And here's Belshazzar having a great party. He was so confident that they could not take his city 
that he's got all the captains, the generals, and the princes, everybody. They, you know, they said there was thousands of them having a great big drunken party. And in the middle of their drunken party, they say, okay, get the, get the utensils from the Jerusalem temple and bring them in here, and we'll drink to our gods out of those, those cups. The way they conquered that city is they went through the river gate and, and through the flooding river gate and got in through that way and took the city. Yeah. An unconquerable city, walls so big that the chariots could ride four abreast. Okay, these weren't little skinny walls. That, you know, Belshazzar had all the confidence in the world. His, 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 his walls were not going to be battered down. You know, they, had double, they had all kinds of doors in the walls that even if they knocked out one, they had to then go to another wall and another wall, and they had crossfire. Of, you know, if they got into those doors, those tunnels, they would be able to shoot at them from across the ways. He felt for sure his city would not fall which is why he's having a drunken party in the middle of a, middle of a besiegement. And they come underneath the gates, underneath the river gates, and take the city in one night and kill all the royalty and save Daniel alive, even though he's got all this accoutrements of royalty. I had nothing to do with these guys. And then he gets to be an advisor to Darius. Okay? He was an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar. He was an advisor. An advisor to Belshazzar's father. By the time Belshazzar comes along, it appears that Daniel is in retirement until Darius comes along. <laughs> and he comes out of retirement for Darius, which tells you how bad Belshazzar was. Uh, Daniel's going to have nothing to do with this basically idiot king. And he says, Nope, you, I'm retired, you go do your thing, because then Darius comes along and Daniel comes back out of retirement. And so we see this thing, and it says in verse 4, my heart panteth, fear affrights me, the night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear. So this is the talking from the Babylonian point of view. Now, we were having a good time, and all of a sudden, fear came, up, came upon us. And then verse 5, prepare the table, watch, watch in the watchtowers, eat, drink, arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. Okay, again, we're seeing, here they are, they're preparing the party. We're in a party. We're having a good time. They're eating. They're drinking. They're, they're celebrating. You know, doing everything except watching the army that's getting ready to take over. Ashdod last night? Huh? Ashdod? Was that the guy's name? Oh, Na Nahash from yesterday. Yeah, Nahash yeah. from yesterday. You know, he was doing the same thing. And this is where you see the pride and arrogancy that can take over when you think you're so accomplished that nothing can bring you down. When, when you're walking in your sin and you're just so confident that nothing can take you down in your sin, and then all of a sudden you go, how did I get where I'm at? Okay, how, how did I end up where I'm at? Because we've talked about this. Most people do not start out with the desire even to sin. They flirt with it. They play with it. You know, most people do not have a desire to go out and commit adultery. Now, there are exceptions, but most people don't go out saying, I think today I'm going to go commit adultery. Okay? But it's a slow process where they start making a series of bad decisions and start spending time with somebody they shouldn't be spending time, and it feels good. They're being liked. They're, they're being looked at kindly, and they're, no, and they're not looking at, neither one of them are necessarily looking 
for, for an adulterous relationship, but things just develop, and then one night they find they've done something stupid. Okay? The people who go out drinking aren't usually going out to get drunk. Now, after a while, they get to the point where they're, going to, they're planning to get drunk, but usually when you take that first drink, you're not saying, I'm just looking forward to being addicted to drinking and having a drink every night of the week and, and getting drunk. Okay? Uh, most people who get into drugs are not saying, well, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to the day that I just can't live without this. Okay? Sin works just like this. We have an arrogancy, we have a pride that says, I can do this and I'm not going to have any great consequence from it. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to guard our lives and have the watchman that he's talking about here watching, which is going to be us. <laughs> okay? Uh, verse 6. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go, said a watchman, let him declare what he sees. So, again, we're being told, watch. And this is going, for each one of us, we're to watch. We're to be able to look and say, you know, we don't want to get into a place where we end up in sin and go, how did I get here? Hopefully, if we've been really paying attention to our life, we go, okay, look at all the steps that took me here. I hear so many people, and I've said it even myself, I just found myself in sin or just happened to find myself in sin. No, you didn't. You made a lot of decisions that got you there. Because if you were making the right decisions, you wouldn't have been in the place to sin in the first place. All right? Now, unfortunately, we all make a lot of bad decisions. We need to be in God's word, though, so that when we see those bad decisions, we stop long short of the worst place we could get to. All right? And this is something that's really critical. How do we do that? Well, we get into his word. We spend time in church. We make godly friends who can come up to us and say, you know, I've been watching what's going on and you've been kind of going down the wrong road. You might want to think about not going there. And again, what I've said before is if you're not praying for them, don't go there without even that statement. You know, pray for them. Because God will make the changes in people if you pray for them. There's been friends where I've had to go talk to them because I've seen things. And there's been people that have been my friends that have come to me and said, you know, you, you were kind of hard at that statement, weren't you? Or, or you did this wrong. You know, you're, you're, you're going down the wrong path. And this is something, sometimes those are needed. Sometimes when, I, when I'm around here and I listen to people starting to get off on the wrong topic, I'll just say, you know, are you guys sure you want to be talking about this? I try to be very gentle. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> you know, and then sometimes people later on go, you know, you tried to stop us, didn't you? I go, Yeah. <laughs> You know, short of, short of saying, stop that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the watchmen, the watchmen that we have, the Bible, being, being taught, having godly friends, very critical that we have these people that can come and see, you know, hey, you know, I've been watching how you've been, you know, handling that relationship with that person. Are you sure that's the path you want to be taking on that relationship? Okay, because... Whether it's adultery, fornication, or whatever, whatever sin it is, you want to beware. But we need to be careful of these things because it is so easy for bad decisions to be made, to go down the wrong path over a long, long or short period of time. We need that, the checks where the Holy Spirit can come in and say, don't do this. 
Don't do this. Don't do this. Now, if we ignore the Holy Spirit long enough, we'll stop hearing his voice. But the wonderful thing for maturity is when we hear the Holy Spirit, we go, oh, yes. Okay, God, I hear you. Okay? And when we're, the more mature we are in God, the faster we hear his voice and the faster we obey. When we're immature, we fall into a lot of problems. <laughs> okay? And we're all... All immature in some, some area of our life will be immature and not listen to God easily. The fun thing is when you listen to God and you say, okay, God, yes, I, I hear you. And you go, wow, God, I, I obeyed pretty quick this time. <laughs> Thank you. you know, unfortunately, at least in my case, it doesn't happen often enough. So we, we look at this and it says, the watchman on verse 7, he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot with donkeys, a chariot with cam camels, and he hearkened dil diligently with much heed. So the watchman sees chariots. Now, these chariots are not drawn by horses. <laughs> okay? Now, this one, I'm not sure if he's looking from Babylon and seeing the attack from the Medo-Persians, saying the Medo-Persians didn't come with the strength to, to defeat us, or what exactly is being said here. But he's seeing chariots that had a couple of horsemen, Okay, so some horse chariots are out there. And then he goes, you know, and some of these chariots are being drawn by donkeys. Now, I can't picture a chariot being drawn by donkeys myself. And chariots being drawn by camels. Now, that's a little more understandable, especially in the desert. You know, it's still kind of amazing to see a great big camel hooked to a, to a chariot. Uh, but I think it's almost making fun of this. His picture of this is the army that he sees is an inferior force. Okay, this is not a strong army. This is not a strong military coming against him. It's not King Solomon's uh, palace where he has thousands of chariots drawn by you know, four to six horses each. Okay, uh, Solomon had a huge fleet of chariots and stables and stables of horses. So what Isaiah is seeing here is like, okay, this is, this is an army, they've got chariots, but they've put any kind of animal they can possibly put in there to, dry, to drag them into battle. Okay, and I think what they're saying is, Babylon should not have fallen. There's no reason Babylon should have fallen, and yet God said they're going to fall. And they're seeing an inferior army. We as Christians should never fall. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, and yet we fall frequently. Looking at this, he says, here is an inferior army that's going to defeat them. And it says, the watchman hearkened diligently, paid great attention to this. And we as Christians have the power in us to not fail, and yet we fail so often. You know, and we need to be aware, because we've talked about this several times, we have plenty of problems even without outside influence. We have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, that's a pretty big deal in the first place. The lust of the flesh. We desire to do wrong. The flesh desires to do wrong, and unless it's crucified, it will lead us the wrong way. Then we have the lust of the eyes. You know, I really want what I see. And we've all been there where we want something. And we have entire industry called the advertising industry that makes us want things that we see. They get paid billions of dollars every year to get, it, to get us to believe that we need something that we never knew that we needed until we saw the advertisement telling us that we needed it. 
Okay, and there's all kinds of those wonderful examples out there. You know, I, I like to make fun of the eggies. You know, the you, you break you, a boiled egg is so hard to peel that you have to buy this plastic container to boil your, your egg, boil your egg so that you can have a boiled egg without having to peel it. Uh, pancake maker that that flip over the top so that because it's so hard to flip a pancake that you have to flip the whole pan over. Now, you know, we just can't live without these things. You know, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, and that's not even getting into the, the TV that works just fine, but because it's not a plasma TV that's 60 inches wide with, with dual uh, Dolby sound, you know, surround sound in it, uh, that has internet connection, that is smartphone, you know, smart TV enabled, and you just can't live without all this stuff because your, your 32 inch TV just isn't good enough. Okay? You know, that is the whole thing, the, the lust of the eyes. How many things have we bought, done, because we thought we wanted it when we saw it? Okay, and then we have the pride of life. Oftentimes we're, we deal with things from the pride of life. I just have to do this because somebody has dared me to, or I will look weak if I don't do this. This happens a lot of times, especially for young people. Okay, well, if I don't do this, they're going to think I'm afraid. Well, you know what? Sometimes it's, there's a greater bravery to not do something than to do something stupid that, because you're afraid of what others will think. But, you know, we all do the same thing. Okay, well, you know, I just did this. Why did you do that? Well, you know, I didn't want to have people think that I, you know, was weak. I, I couldn't let people think that I couldn't get, get by. You know, so I just did it. Then add on top of that a little bit of, of temptation from the devil or demons. You know, but they get a lot more credit than they, they, they deserve. Most of our sin does not have anything to do with them. Now, can they help it along? Oh, yeah, they know how to help it along. They know how to put just the right looking person in front of you that says, wow, look at that person. <laughs> And, and draw you into the lust of that, of that area. They know how just to wrap up certain things to draw you into the, to your lust. We need to be careful. We need to keep a watchman on the, on the tower saying, no, I'm going to stand for God. And standing for God is not easy sometimes. It's, it is more courageous to stand for God than anything else out there, and yet people belittle it. Even some Christians will belittle standing for God. You know, and I've heard it. You know, somebody will share, you know, well, I'm just having this much trouble with my husband or my spouse, and, you know, and what is the first thing that people will say? Well, you, you just get divorced. Yeah. Well, my Bible says that God hates divorce, and it's the last possible thing that we should be considering. Now, is there room for divorce? Yes, in the case of adultery, there's room for divorce. But even then, it's not a requirement. Okay, if somebody's being abused, yes, get them out of that situation and then try to help them get counseling to, to fix their relationship. But let's make sure our counsel when we talk to somebody is godly counsel. Because there's a lot of counsel in churches that is not godly. Not based in God's word at all. You know, God says that we're to pay our debts and yet we'll be counseled oftentimes, well, you're so far behind, just get a bankruptcy. No, that's not what God says. Okay, God says pay your debts. You made, made a debt, pay your vows. You know, God says that you made vows to, to stay together for, for to death to you part. God expects you to stay together. 
He says he wants you to be truthful. And we've defined this. In Exodus, it tells us that truthfulness is to tell the truth. Okay? The whole truth. Okay? And yet, people will always be looking at, okay, how much can I say or not say before I'm lying? Well, according to God, if you don't say what you know, you're lying. Sins of omission are some of the ones that we commit the most. Well, God, I didn't say that, I didn't tell them what I wanted to tell them. And God says, well, you did good in that, but you still didn't tell them what I wanted you to tell them. All right? And this is where Jesus said, you know, if you look after somebody with lust, you've committed adultery. If you've looked at somebody, if you've said unto somebody, you know, spoken to them in anger, you've committed murder in your heart. Okay? And he says, yes, you know, your flesh is still there. Your flesh is still moving, and your flesh is guilty. You know, you're not, and again, when we say this, the consequences for doing the actual act is a lot different from the thinking of the act. Okay? There's a huge difference of being guilty of adultery in your mind and going out and committing adultery. You're much better off, less consequence, much easier to repent. Okay, but we still want to watch our, we want to bring our thoughts into captivity according to Corinthians. Because why? Because thoughts can put a stronghold into our life. Many people think about something, they entertain the idea, well this is, if I could get away with it, this is what I wanted to do to this person. And they keep thinking about it and thinking about it, and eventually, usually, some form of what they've been thinking about will come out. You know, well, you know, Man, that person really looks good. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, that person really looks good. And before long, you act out on what you've been thinking on. This is why we must keep our thoughts in captivity and let the Holy Spirit deliver us from those thoughts. And this is why we don't dwell on things. You know, people go, well, I can't forget. Forgetting is one of the easiest things in the world to do. Quit thinking about it. Okay? How many of us can say what we ate last, last Thursday night for dinner? Not too many people can say what they ate last Thursday. Why? Because you didn't think about it. Right. Now, let's say you went out to this great banquet and you had one of the best meals you've ever had. How long will you remember that meal? You, know, you might be three or four years. Going, you know, I had one of my best meals on this, this particular <laughs> month five years ago. It was a wonderful time. and all. You know, why? Because it sticks in your mind and you think about it. Most people nurse their complaints. You know, I just can't forgive this person. It's easy to forgive. Forget it. Well, I can't forget it. Quit dwelling on it. Quit thinking about what they did to you and forgive them. You know, and this is what's important. We still have it up on the, on the PowerPoint. And how do we forgive? We quit thinking about something. We quit talking about it. You know, I, I've got people that tell me the same story about how somebody has hurt them 20 years ago, it seems like. And they're still telling the story every time somebody gets in. You know, what's really bad is if you don't even know the person they're talking about. Okay? I know some of you commented that they go, they really hate this person and they don't even know them. I'm going, why? Well, because so-and-so keeps talking about them. I go, well, I would stop talking to so-and-so then. You know, you hate somebody you've never even met because you've been told about how bad they are. 
Okay, we need to be selective on what we listen to as well. Now, what their story is may be correct, but one thing I've learned over the years of conflict uh, resolution is there's usually two sides of a story and the truth is somewhere in between. You know, and the problem is if you listen to just one side of a story, you're going to have the wrong information about a story almost guaranteed because everybody slants their story. It doesn't matter who they are. They're going to slant their story to make themselves look good. Well, you know, so-and-so just smacked me upside the head when I was walking by. Oh, they just out of the blue smacked Well, you know, I might have said something to them. Uh, well, what did you say? Well, you know, I might have said something derogatory to them. And then you were surprised that they smacked you. You know, but every time I would hear these stories from, from trying to fix them up, I'd always hear these really strange stories. When you heard just one side of the story, you're ready to, to kill the person on the, the start, and then you hear the other side of the story, and it's like, okay, who's telling the truth? And the, the thing about it is, usually both people are telling the truth from their own perspective. They're not telling the whole truth, but they're telling a truth. We need to be able to speak the truth and be able to tell people, yes, this is the truth. And here we see this watchtower. And it says in verse 9, Behold, there comes... Oops, excuse me, I skipped 8. And he cried, A lion, my lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime. I am set in my ward all night. So he's saying, a lion, or actually they believe this is talking about regalness, the, the kingliness of the lion. Okay? The, the royalty, the regal, regalness of the Lord. He says, I'm standing watch, and I'm standing guard all night. Now, this is, this is what the watch, watchman's supposed to do. They're supposed to guard. Usually they only guarded four-hour shifts. So I don't know why he means the whole night, but uh, four-hour shifts is a long time to stand guard. It's a long time to stay awake and, and just watch. And there was nine, and behold, here comes a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen, and he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, ba is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken into the ground. And this is what happened. Darius came in and destroyed the gods of Babylon. He came in and defeated Babylon, and Babylon fell in a night. Yeah. Pretty amazing. The mighty city, nobody thought it was going to fall, and it falls in one night. And this can happen, and it says their gods have been defeated. Their gods have been defeated. Just a few hours earlier, they were drinking and praising their gods with the, with the temple instruments, the cups and everything that belonged to God, praising the idols. And God says, nope, that's it. You know, you're, you're done for Belshazzar. And... Uh, in verse 10, Oh, my threshing and my corn on my floor, that which was heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared unto you. And they lost everything. This, the, the threshing, the, the corn, they, their, their, their produce. You know, they go from being a mighty nation, mighty empire, to nothing. And you know, many people will look around and say, you know, God, why is so-and-so being blessed and they're not following you? They're, they're not obeying you. And God says, they will bow. They will come to me. 
And we look at so many people so often and we go, David himself goes, why do the heathen rage and the, and the nations prosper? And God says, we're not done with them. <laughs> I'm not done with them. You know, and we've talked about this. How many people do we read about that are, that are rich and famous, that are movie stars, that are actors, that are athletes, who succumb to alcoholism, to drug abuse, you know, and we look at them and say, you know, they had everything. Why would they? But they didn't have anything. They did not have God. You know, and we all are created with a need for God. And without God, we will never be completely happy. We might be happy for a short period of time. You know, people, when they buy their brand new car, their brand new house, they're happy for a little while. And then, you know, you buy your car and you're happy until you get the first scratch on it, the first dent on it. You know, the, the first payment maybe, yeah. Uh, and all of a sudden, you're no longer happy with it. And that may be a little while, it may be a short time. You know, relationships will make you happy at first. You know, no matter what that relationship is, you might be happy at first with the relationship, and then it starts to fall to fall apart. And he says, "Well, this isn't this isn't what I wanted." There is a time when God says, "You will pay the piper." All right, most likely in this lifetime, but even if it isn't in this lifetime, you will stand at the white throne judgment for having rejected Christ and end up in hell. All right? Bad, bad place to be. You will face troubles even before that. And this is what I've seen over and over. These people are never satisfied. They're never happy without God. And a lot of people go, well, I'd like to be the one to try. No, you wouldn't. Don't be such a fool. Nobody else has. You won't be either. And, you know, and this is something that is very important for us to see. Without God, there is no real satisfaction. You know, with God, we can be satisfied with nothing because God is in control. And we need to keep this in mind that we look to him. We're going to stop here. There's just too much, too much more to go into without having to, with only five minutes left. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, we thank you that you are our deliverer. And Lord, that you can give us great victory when we depend upon you and, and lean upon you. Hide in you that you will deliver us and give us victory, that you will help us to bring our thoughts into captivity. And we just thank you, ask you to go with us as we go about our week. In Jesus' name, amen.